Try this again. Titus 2, starting at verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men. Somebody say, that's me. Teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Talking about lessons from grace. We began last week by establishing that it is most definitely by grace that we are saved and that we desperately need the grace of God. And that as the old hymn says, grace is definitely amazing. But too often grace is misinterpreted as a license for excusing the ungodly conduct of people who claim to be Christians, saying that grace just covers anything. It's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. But our text, our, our scripture we read in Titus tells us that grace actually teaches us that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and that we should live soberly or in a disciplined fashion, righteously and godly in this present world. And so for the next few Sundays, I'm not sure exactly how many yet, we're going to cover some areas that will hopefully help us to do the things that grace is trying to teach us to do. I want to start this morning by talking about everybody's challenge. Overcoming your flesh. Overcoming your flesh. Your natural life, in its physical sense, is a constant thing. You're inhaling, exhaling. You're consuming food and water. Your body is converting those things into various forms of fuel and energy which contribute toward structural growth and strength and and our bones and our muscles, our brain function, uh, our body's ability to heal, to repair, to regenerate. I'm glad that the Lord has put healing in the body. Amen. I would suggest to you, this is not part of my lesson, but spiritual healing can also be found in His body. Amen. So He has put that, all of these things are constantly happening and these things never really stop. Even the, the experts tell us that even while we are sleeping, there are important processes that are taking place in our bodies. Amen. And the part of us that is our spirit and our soul is not as separate from the physical as some people would believe, but is actually woven together very closely. That's why when you really begin to consider it, physical health, mental health, and spiritual health are all connected. They are all connected. And when you are born again, the Bible tells us that we begin a new life. Now, this new life, this new birth experience, happens through a process where we are closing the door in our old life. We are obeying the word of God by faith when we repent or we die to that old life. We're baptized in Jesus' name to have our sins washed away and we are filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. This is what the Bible calls the new birth or the beginning of that new life. And the Bible teaches us about repentance and about turning from sin and there is a parallel that Scripture draws between Jesus dying on the cross and you and I dying to our sins. Now, when we, when we die to our sins, obviously the physical body doesn't die, otherwise either none of us have repented or we got something wrong. We're all still here this morning. But while, while this is an excellent comparison and a description of what happens, we also know that there, there is a turning away from the old life, but our sinful human nature does not leave us when we are born again. And somebody can say amen to that. It is resident within us from birth. 
As parents, there are so many things we have to teach our children. Misbehaving is not one of them. Children come pre-programmed with the ability to misbehave. You don't have to teach your children to lie. They learn that at a very early age. I don't remember my, my mom or dad ever saying, now this is how you lie. They try to teach you manners. They try to teach you all sorts of things. But doing the wrong thing and misbehaving and just being plain old naughty is pre-programmed in every child that ever is born into the world. Amen. And it is this sinful nature within us that is still subject to temptation. It is still being drawn away from the kind of life that Jesus wants us to live. So what is happening to us every single day? I wish there were spiritual public holidays, but there aren't. Every single day, there are two lives that we must choose between. There is an old man. That's not your father. There is an old man and a new man. Now, our default setting. What I mean by that is our natural setting. If you buy a computer or a smartphone, it comes with a default setting out of the box. When when you take that that piece of technology out of the box, there are things that are already set up. Now, once you begin to use it, you can change the pictures, you can add apps or programs and do all sorts of stuff. But if you ever need to reset that, you take it back to its default settings. Okay? Our default setting. What we return to if we are not consciously making a choice is the old sinful man. I wish our default setting was living the way God wanted us to live. That would make life so much easier. But our default setting is the old sinful man. So in other words, if we are inactive spiritually, and we'll break down what that means a little bit more as we go along, if we do nothing, we will simply return to our default setting, which is the sinful nature of mankind. That's... Not the most encouraging thing, I understand. So, what is it in our old life that really dies when we repent, when we're buried with Him in baptism and filled with the Holy Ghost? After all, we're still being tempted. I still get tempted. I'm still flawed. You're still flawed. It is still always easier to sin than not to sin. It's not hard to sin. Anybody really struggle to sin? It's not hard at all. It's one of the easiest things you can do. So, what, what, what is it that's actually died... The thing that dies when we repent is the dominion or the control that sin had over us. Being born again introduces a new life and a part of that new life is the power to refuse sin, to resist temptation and to please God. That is a power that we did not have before. Galatians chapter 5 lets us know that these two lives or these two forces we might say, one flesh and one spirit, are in conflict. They oppose one another. They cannot coexist or live together in harmony. One is going to dominate the other. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 17, says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. It's just a good old tug of war. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. So if our default setting is sinful flesh, then the only successful way to live for God is to have a consistent suppression, starvation, crucifying of the old man combined with, very important, it must also include a feeding, strengthening and growing spiritual new man. 
If all you do is starve the old man, you're just going to be frustrated, you're just going to get irritated, and you're going to fail. But as we starve the old man, we must also combine that with feeding the new man. Amen. You cannot do one without the other. Just as the natural bodies are constantly living, so our spiritual bodies, if I can use that parallel, are also constantly inhaling, exhaling, taking on board fuel. And so what we give is what's going to determine our outcomes. You cannot, we've covered this quite a bit lately, so I'm thinking the Lord wants us to really get this concept. You cannot defeat sin by simply writing a list of the things you know you shouldn't do and trying to stop doing them. Removing habits or changing conduct does not achieve godliness or righteousness. You can't earn brownie points with God. It doesn't work that way. A strong, successful spiritual life is not achieved by the things that you do not do. Too many people approach their relationship with God from the position of, if I don't do certain things, then I am in a relationship with God. That is not an accurate statement. The more accurate understanding is, I am in a relationship with God, therefore I don't do certain things. That's the better understanding. There is a very, very significant difference between the two. Now, we've got a young couple who just got engaged. When you get married, when you commit to one person until death do us part, that changes your relationship with other people of the opposite sex. If you get married, gentlemen, you don't go out and have coffee with an old girlfriend. Not unless you've got rocks of brains. You, there are just some things you don't do anymore. But by not doing those things, that doesn't mean you have a healthy relationship. That means that there are things you're not doing because you want to have a healthy relationship. But if you never talk to your wife, you never do nice things and have a healthy relationship and communicate, the fact that you're not going out for coffee with your old girlfriend is fairly pointless. You still don't have a healthy relationship. And too many Christians view their walk with God as, I don't do all these things, therefore I have a good relationship with God. It's got to be, I have a relationship with God. We spend time together, I listen to Him, He listens to me, and so I don't do those things. That's the right understanding. Amen. The new life must replace the old life. That's what has to happen. You can't just take one life away and have a void. It's not going to work. First John 1 and 4 and 4, sorry, First John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. First John chapter 5 and verse 4 says that whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So when I believe and do what God says in his word, and I have a relationship with him, I have something in me that is greater than what's in the world. I have something in me that, is, that gives me the ability to overcome the world. We're talking about in this present world. Amen. Your flesh, your sinful nature is never passive. It is never passive. You're never going to get up one day and say, hey, just, it seems like that sinful nature has gone away. It's gone for a holiday. It doesn't happen, but it is drawn to sin like a moth to a flame. It is constantly drawn. In fact, Really, when it comes down to it, where the rubber meets the road, sin is not actually the problem. It is our attraction to sin like a magnet that is the problem. It is the fact that we are so easily drawn towards sin. I mean, let, let's, let's, let's get real this morning. What are you more naturally drawn to when it comes to food? The things that are healthy 
If you're Brother Thomas, that's a yes. The rest of us, we are drawn to the things that aren't healthy, naturally. If you sit, there's not many children who say, hey kids, would you prefer the Brussels sprouts or the chips? Most kids are going for the chips. And there's just, that is in, a, in itself a reflection of our sinful nature. We naturally want that which is not good for us. I mean, there's just something about that. There's, there's an old North Amer- Native American proverb that talks about two dogs or two wolves in a fight. And when an old man is asked who wins the fight, he, re- he replies, the one that you feed is the one that wins the fight. And that's a powerful principle for us. To unpack this a little further, the car that you came to church in this morning, the physical structure of that car will not move by itself. If you go out there and your car's gone, it didn't happen by itself. Okay, somebody was involved. Why doesn't that car move by itself? There's gravity that's involved. There's friction that's involved. There are these forces that are are holding that car in its place. Your brakes are hopefully involved as well. But when fuel is added to your engine and that engine is started, explosions begin to take place in the cylinders, whether you've got four, six, eight, or however many you might have in your car. And the explosions in those cylinders provide the power necessary for the engine to begin to cause the vehicle to move. There is something that has been added to the situation that gives a source of power so the car can move. Now, if you take that car out onto the freeway and get it up to 100 kilometers an hour because that's the speed limit, you're doing the speed limit. I wouldn't advise you to do this on the freeway, but theoretically, if you got up to 100 kilometers an hour, put the car in neutral and just turn the engine off, what's going to happen? It's going to begin to slow down. It's going to eventually, well, if it hits something, it'll stop, but eventually it will come to a stop because of the same forces that it's being submitted to that it was submitted to before you turn the motor on. Those forces are always there. Amen. And so those other forces will gradually bring the car to a stop. And so by turning the engine on or off, and I'm not a mechanic or an engineer, so this is very simple, you are choosing which forces control the car. I've used this example before, but it's relevant. The example of flight. It's always amazing to look at a plane, particularly a very large plane like an A380 or something like that, and recognize that that giant sardine can with wings can fly. But you see, an aeroplane is subject to the law of gravity just like everything else. Okay, When I was in Alice Springs in the last year or so, because there's very little humidity out there, a lot of the airlines were storing their aircraft out there while there wasn't much air travel happening. It was, it was like this incredible aircraft car park or air, aircraft park. Just as far as you could see, planes lined up. All different airlines from across the world were there, from Singapore, other places across the world, because they weren't able to fly. There was no risk of any of those planes leaving by themselves in the middle of the night, just going for a drive down the highway, because those great big heavy planes were subject to the law of gravity and they're just sitting there, okay? But with the right design, and again, this is not my field, things like wing shape and size and all that stuff, and a sufficient power source, such as a jet engine, other laws come into play. The laws of aerodynamics, which I think have four parts and that's about as much explaining of that as I'm going to do. But other laws come into play, and so because there is a source of power that has been added, flight becomes possible. 
because one law, when it's given power, can overcome another law. Amen. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says that you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me, the Lord said, in all those different places to the uttermost part of the earth. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 and 2, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them what you are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So those two verses in Romans, using our examples, before we're born again, the law of sin, just like the law of gravity, was all we knew, and we could not defeat it. You cannot defeat gravity just by jumping. It doesn't happen. So before we're born again, we were subject to the law of sin. That was the controlling law in our lives. But when we are born again, when we are filled with the Holy Ghost, with the Spirit of God, we now have a power source which brings into play another law, the law of Christ, which is a bit like the law of aerodynamics, so that we now have a source of power that enables us to defeat the old law with the new law. Amen. So as long as you feed or fuel the power source, you can continue to overcome the law of sin. The reason we struggle with the law of sin is because we're not pouring enough gas into the law of of life, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. As long as we fuel that power source, we can defeat the law of sin. Just like an aircraft, as long as that engine's got fuel to burn, it can defeat the law of gravity. No more fuel, no more power. No more power, nosedive. Okay, it's the same spiritually. You cut off the power source, you will crash and burn. It's that simple. It really is that simple. Amen. It's important that we understand. We're talking about grace, but we don't want to misinterpret what grace is all about. It's important we understand that there are things that the Bible teaches us clearly that should not be a part of a Christian's life. Scripture teaches that very clearly. Galatians 5 and 19. We're going to read quite a few scriptures here. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. They're revealed. They are these. These are the things that are part of our natural sinful nature. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. You can look all those up if you want. They all have to do with immorality. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me break down what that means. Shall not inherit the kingdom of God means you will not go to heaven. That's what that means. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 29. Wherefore, this is for people that think, I'm not saying anybody here, but in general, people who think that it doesn't matter how you live. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. There's a challenge. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needed. Don't steal from other people. Get a job. That's what that says. <laughs> so you can help somebody else. Amen. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that which builds other people up, 
that it may minister grace to the hearers. And one more, Colossians 3, verses 8 and 9. But now ye also put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing as you have put off the old man with his deeds. To say that it doesn't matter how we live is to completely ignore these scriptures. And there's plenty more that we could add to that list. Amen. These passages give us lists of things that if they are a part of our lives, they will keep us from going to heaven. And I don't know about you, but that's why I'm in this thing. I'm in this thing to spend eternity with the Lord. Amen. There is no place for sin in our relationship with God. Now, we all know that we are not perfect and that we do fall. That's where grace kicks in. But grace is never an excuse to say, hey, I can sin a little bit every day. It doesn't matter. That is not the principle of the Word of God. We preach about grace. We preach about forgiveness. And we preach about the battles that we face and how God will help us. And all of that is true, but we must never interpret that to mean that sin does not matter. The Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Amen. It would benefit all of us, me included, to go through those passages, look at what those words mean, and allow the Word of God to speak to us. And if we need to deal with some of those things, to bring them to Him in repentance. Amen. You know... One of the biggest challenges we face in living an overcoming life as Christians is honesty. Now, if you're sitting thinking, well, I don't tell lies, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being truthful and untruthful rather and telling lies, but being completely honest with ourselves. Being able to read scriptures like we just read and be able to look at ourselves honestly and say, are these things in my life? Are these things in my heart? Are there things here that I'm struggling with that I need to work on, that I need to repent of, that I need to ask God to help me with, to acknowledge our weaknesses? That level of honesty is a challenge for all of us. Don't be so quick to dismiss the things in these verses. Remember, they are written to churches. They're written to churches, which means that they're challenges for believers just as much as they are for unbelievers. But the good thing is we have a source of power that if we will draw near to him, he will help us to overcome those things. As an example, drunkenness. You know, we, you know, not generally a problem in the church. You know, we're not getting together on Friday afternoon and, and having a cold beer together. That's not something we do. Amen. But drunkenness is not restricted to just alcohol. The scripture is not obsessing with a particular liquid, but it's talking about anything that can intoxicate us. Anything that impairs or messes with our judgment is a form of drunkenness. So there are things in our lives that cause our judgment to be impaired. We need to look at that. We need to consider our emotions. There's nothing wrong with emotion. But emotion can, unrestrained, can be destructive. We need to look at our attitudes. We need to be willing to be honest with ourselves. If you're reading those lists and those scriptures and giving yourself 10 out of 10 for all of them, get your spouse or a family member or a close friend and sit down and say, be honest with me. And hopefully you'll still be friends at the end of the conversation. God forbid that we should become soft on sin. That is not the message of grace. Amen. But any of these things on those lists will feed our flesh and give power or fuel to the sin in our lives. But as I've said before and will say again, you will not get to heaven simply by the things that you do not do. The Lord is not going to hold up a list and say, did you not do any of these things? Because the change that Jesus wants to bring into our lives doesn't only happen at the level of our actions. It happens at the level of our nature. It happens at the level of us being transformed. Amen. 
So these lists that Scripture gives us are not to be read in isolation or used as checklists of the things that we don't do. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let me break that down in modern English. Keep putting gas in that jet engine, and you will defeat the law of sin and death. Keep allowing the other law to be the one that you're in control by, and you will defeat sin. Verse 22 says that the fruit of the Spirit. See, the other list is works of the flesh. They are naturally occurring. Fruit grows by relationship. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or we would say self-control. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Amen. So again, it is not just about avoiding some things, but it is firstly about a relationship with Jesus where other things are growing. You know, if you want to grow fruit trees of any kind, you need to weed the garden, all right? I hate gardening. You all know that. I've confessed that many times. But if you want to grow fruit-bearing trees, you need to clear out the weeds. But clearing out the weeds doesn't produce apples. (laughs) You don't just, well, I've got rid of all the weeds. The fruit will come now. No, the fruit trees have to be planted. They have to be nurtured. They have to be looked after so that you grow fruit over time. The weeds have to continue to be kept out. But simply thinking if I get the weeds out, I'll get apples, doesn't make any sense. It's the same spiritually. We have to get the sin out of our life, but we've also got to sow the good seed to grow the good fruit so that in time we will be able to say, Lord, the things are growing in my life that you want to be growing. And while you're sowing that seed and watering that seed, you've got to keep keeping the weeds out. Weeds come back. There's a revelation. They always come back. You know, that's why there were times when I was younger, I used to think a perfect yard was just concrete, front to back. From the footpath to the back fence, just concrete. Fantastic, low maintenance. Trouble is, the weeds find a way to get in the cracks in the concrete. They even come up through the concrete. And it's the same spiritually. If you try to lay a slab in your spiritual life, the weeds are still coming. But it's not just about getting them out. It's so much more about what we're putting in. Because if all you do is get them out, you're barren. But if as part of sowing the seed, you're getting the weed out, that's where we're going to have a relationship with the Lord. Ephesians 4, verses 20 to 24. I'm trying to wrap this up. But you have not so learned Christ, if so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off, like a garment, put off concerning the former conversation or your former lifestyle, the old man, which is corrupt, according to deceitful lust, that natural nature, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Your mind has got to be transformed and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. There is no point in putting off an old man if you're not putting on a new man. There's no point putting off an old man if the Lord's not changing our minds and helping to put on a new man. The same concept is echoed in Paul's letter to the Colossians in Colossians 3, verses 10 to 14. And have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. What that means is we've got to learn to think like he wants us to think. That's what that means. It's King James English. It's not always easy sometimes. But it means through his word, through his spirit, that the way we think begins to change. As Brother Paulus loves to say, 
We need a checkup from the neck up to be delivered from stinking thinking. We've got to change the way that we think. Amen. Then in verse 11, it basically says, it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are, it's Christ that's all in all. Put on, therefore, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. Again, King James English is not literally, it's talking about being merciful in our hearts. It's a genuine compassion and mercy. Put on bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing, putting up with one another, forgiving one another. And if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Verse 13 will keep you busy. And verse 14 says, and above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. These passages all speak about things that are happening at a much deeper level than just our actions. It's happening about changing our hearts and our minds, that renewing, that making new our minds, changing the way that we think. There is a love, that's charity in verse 14, there's a love that is sacrificial that the Bible tells us is the glue that sticks us together. It is the bond of perfectness. It's what holds his people together. I mean, we might get into some more of that next week. There is fruit that can only be produced by what is happening under the surface. Fruit becomes visible, but fruit is a product of what is happening under the ground. Amen. We have to do more than simply pray and read his word like robots. We have to let his nature change who we are. My goodness, I've still got about 25 pages of notes. Amen. If we feed the flesh all week long, ungodly speech, ungodly influences, ungodly entertainment, serving ourselves above everything else. Please do not think that five minutes at an altar on Sunday morning just makes everything great again. It does not work like that. You will find forgiveness for your sin, but it does not matter how powerful the service is. You need consistency for fruit. Amen. You need to have that relationship with God on the weekdays. That's W-E-A-K as well as W-E-E-K. We need to have consistency on the weekdays or you will return to serving sin, being dominated by your flesh. Amen. When we pray, we should worship the Lord. Worship is so important in our prayer time. We should bring our needs and our petitions to the Lord. We should pray for our families. Pray for our church. Please pray for your pastor. Pray for your city. We need to allow the Holy Ghost to lead us as we pray. We need to let the Spirit of God bring people to our minds. We need to let the Spirit of God flow through us as we pray. And I'm not going to read these verses for the sake of time, but in Romans it talks to us about how the Spirit of God can make intercession through us. In other words, when we pray in other tongues, as the Spirit of God is flowing through us, God is almost praying. It is perfect prayer. Because when we pray in our understanding, it is filtered through our understanding. When we pray in the Holy Ghost, it removes the filter of our natural thinking and it prays the way that God would have us to pray. It doesn't have our slant or our flavor or our influence on it, but it has that filter is removed and we're praying as God would have us to pray. That's why in Jude it tells us to build up our faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. There's something powerful that prays in the Holy Ghost. Even the Apostle Paul said that he would pray in the Spirit and he would pray with his understanding. We need to do both. We need to do both because something is happening inside of us. Amen. Because God searches our hearts. The Word of God. We're talking about overcoming our flesh. That You need to pray and you need the Word of God. But the question is, 
What do you do with the Word of God? Daily reading is a good discipline. But again, if it is just a task, we are missing the point. James told us in James chapter 1 that we need to read the Word of God, hear the Word of God, and apply the Word of God. He says if you read it and you don't do it, it's like looking at yourself in a mirror and forgetting who you are. But when you read the Word of God, it needs to speak into our hearts. We need to take it. We need to look for application. We always need to ask the question. We always need to say, Lord, what can I do with this scripture? What can I do with this message? How can I apply this? We enjoy good preaching. I enjoy good preaching. I don't enjoy lousy preaching. I'm honest. You know, when, when you start to think, is he done yet? You know, or is she done yet? Then, you know, sometimes that's just our attitude, not the preacher's fault. But uh, I thought I'd get one amen from that, from the preachers at least. But we enjoy good preaching. But enjoyment is not its primary purpose. Transformation is its purpose. That it would be absorbed, that it would be integrated, that it would be applied. When we read the word, are we looking for an application? Are we saying, how can I make this a part of my life? How can I be more like the Lord? Good preaching should drive us to our knees. Good preaching should make us want to draw close to God. It should want us to say, Lord, I want to be the person he was preaching about today. I want to apply that principle to my life. Good preaching should go home with us and find a way into our hearts. That's what we're trying to encourage with the devotions that we're promoting, is that application. You know, when I, when I mentioned before these, the, work, the lists of works of the flesh and the, the fruit of the Spirit, that we should go home and look at them, how many of us thought, I'm going to do that? Don't want to show our hands. But did we think, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take that suggestion. I'm going to go home. I'm going to look up those things. I'm going to see what they mean and how they apply to my life. Because if you do not seek to apply the Scripture to your life, if you do not see its purpose as being transformative, if you don't have time to let the Word of God become a part of you, then you do not have time to be victorious or an overcomer either. Amen. Our focus passage, and I'm closing with this comment, in Titus chapter 2, tells us that grace teaches us that we can live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. But before we do that, it also says that we must deny ungodliness and worldly thus. We must overcome our flesh. Stand with me if you would.